Hey everyone, welcome to the Obiter Podcast. I'm Pat Clancy. And I'm Melissa Wan. And this is episode two of the Lawyer Series. In this series, we sit down with lawyers at Mackenzie Lake to discuss their career, personal life, and anything in between, all in an effort to introduce our listeners to the human being behind the lawyer. Today we're sitting down with John McNair. John is a commercial litigator with over 35 years of experience, both in private practice and in international public law. John is a former managing partner of Mackenzie Lake and is the current head of the firm's litigation department. Today, John's chatting with us about his past life as an international prosecutor in the Middle East, as well as a host of other interesting aspects of his career. So John, why don't you start off by telling us a bit about your career in your own words? Yeah, I mean, my practice, I guess, has kind of morphed several times over the years. Uh, but in the latest incarnation, I, uh, for the last several years, I've, uh, I've concentrated on commercial litigation uh, on one side of my practice. Um, and on the other side, uh, I do uh, workplace investigations for a whole range of organizations, um, from universities and school boards to uh, hospitals and nonprofits and and private sector organizations that uh, that need help with workplace misconduct or conflict of interest allegations. So those are kind of the broad areas that I've that my practice comprises. Previous to that, um, I guess what what else did you do? What else? What areas did you practice in in, in the past before you? Well, got always it? done uh, commercial litigation and employment law in some measure, uh, but my start, I guess, in the law was in criminal law. Um, both on the defense side a little bit initially, and then uh, I was appointed as a, a federal prosecutor once upon a time and did um, did narcotics and uh, customs and excise and a whole range of other federal statute statutory prosecutions for a number of years. Right, and you've been on both the prosecutorial side and defense side. Is yeah, more right? so prosecutions. Um, I started out with a firm which did a great deal of criminal defense work and got uh, got a pretty good grounding in that, both at trial and appeal level, and uh, and then switched over to uh, to prosecutions after that. What did you prefer? You know what? Um, I could do either equally with equal comfort. Um, I think that's you know I've always said that's sort of the barrister's role: uh, take the brief and and. Uh, and be an advocate, um, but I, I can do either one. They, they both are equally important in our system. I guess your prosecutorial background, is that what made you um, go overseas to, to prosecute over there and, and kind of take us through yeah. how that came about? Yeah, that was kind of a, you know, a mid-career decision. I'd already been a lawyer for, I don't know, 17 or 18 years before I did that. So, um, but I had that background as a prosecutor, and I had always wanted to work uh, in one of the international tribunals, uh, potentially in The Hague or elsewhere. Um, and then an opportunity came up in Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, so I went there in... I've always uh, wondered how to say that. I know. I've never known either. Well, there <laughs> you <laughs> have it. <laughs> I, I can't give you the Serbo-Croatian pronunciation, okay. but... but we'll that, take that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I... Um, 
I took that opportunity, and and uh, the firm was was terrific about letting me go on that sojourn. Which uh, and when was that? Started in two thousand and three, and it was initially really only a six month contract with the office of the high representative, which um, was then and, and still is the sort of the sovereign legal authority in Bosnia. Um, but when I was there. The high representative, who was then Lord Ashdown, Paddy Ashdown, uh, imposed upon the Bosnian Parliament a new criminal code and a new criminal procedure code. And under that legislation, the deputy chief prosecutor in the country uh, had to be an international lawyer. And so I was appointed while I was there as the first uh, international deputy chief prosecutor. How does that opportunity come your way? Um, I applied for the OHR position in their anti-corruption unit, uh, and was a, and was did an interview and and was hired, um, and went there in August of 2003, um, and then I, you know, was appointed effective by the High Representative effective January 1st, 2004. I was. Sort of so you were over there on the spot and qualified. I think <laughs> is how it came to me. You were o- already over there when the the new code was passed, and or it, I think it was in, it became law just as I arrived or just before. Okay, yeah. so that made you potentially a bit of a target over there. Did uh, you have any kind w- of security detail or anything like that? Yeah, I had a close protection team starting uh, in. I'm going to say February of 2004 for the rest of my term. Uh, and so, so this was after you were appointed to that position? Yeah, a few weeks afterwards I got the... After a, what, a bullet was by your head or something? No, I, I recall that story. <laughs> or, or was that an urban myth? Nothing that dramatic, you know. I, I don't know what I... That report. was just an old hunting story. I don't know what yeah. I reported back here to the firm, but, uh, <laughs> but it wasn't that dramatic. But there were some... Uh, it was a very high-profile position. And uh, there were various reported security threats and incidents, and nothing ever really materialized. But um, are we talking like armored vehicle and everything? No, I had a I had a Land Rover Discovery, which was not armored. <laughs> uh, but I had a. a but th- you chose the luxury. You had the choice of the luxury vehicle or the armored. Oh, vehicle it was pretty beat up. But it had a little <laughs> it had a little gun rack, and oh. I had a th- I had a three member close protection team. We rotated in pairs. So they were with me all the time. Any time I stepped outside the door of my flat, um, and they hung out around the court all day and uh, sat in the c- back of the courtroom during trials, and yeah, wow. they were always around. Can you tell us about any high-profile cases you did over there? I did the trial of the uh, former uh, Bosnian Cro- Croat president, Ante Jelovic, and that trial uh, went on sort of intermittently, not every day, but went on for a year. From t- uh, he, we arrested him and his co co accused in uh, I'm going to say January 2004. The trial started in the fall of 2005, and it went on until late 2006. And my department of, of international prosecutors did a number of cases. Um, that was kind of the the biggest in terms of length of the trial and and the degree of attention it got. What were the charges against him? A whole range of uh, public corruption charges. Uh, some of them, are, some of them, come arising under the former Yugos, the former law of the Yugoslavia, uh, abuse of public office, essentially. But really, it involved the diversion of public funds um, from Croatia, flowing from Croatia to the Croat part of Bosnia. Um, 
so it was a it was a public corruption government corruption series series of charges what about like the cultural experience of going over there and practicing law like how different was it over there uh, in Bosnia it was a great lawyering experience as a uh, in terms of development as a lawyer it was it was terrific um, the Bosnian criminal justice system is a hybrid of uh, really the common law and the and the European model so uh, the prosecutor controls the investigation process uh, directs the investigations which was sort of new to me and I, and I but I had really good police backup including some RCMP people um, but at the trial it's a common law style trial okay. and that was new to the Bosnians so like examination in chief cro- cross examination was a new thing for the Bosnian lawyers so I had it all over them on that stuff because that's what I like so yeah. uh, so the trials were were interesting and uh, the Bosnians had had the benefit of considerable training the American Bar Association at uh, rule of law project had trained them and they were well educated and very capable so it was kind of the lead up to the trials that were more out of your wheelhouse so to speak or yeah for example um, here uh, the police operate with much more independence in their investigations they essentially often bring the the finished product of the investigation to the prosecutor. Um, In in the Bosnian system, the police kind of don't do anything without direction from the prosecutor, without an order from the prosecutor. So uh, in terms of financial investigations, uh, arrests, um, we did, we we prosecuted some, a human, a big human trafficking case, um, uh, some narcotics cases, uh, some customs and if the prosecutors are directing those investigations, would there be sort of police-minded people on the prosecution team and vice versa, or not? Am I not really kind of identifying Yeah, that? I mean, we, we did work very closely with, with uh, Bosnian police, uh, yeah. particularly in my, in my case, the uh, Federation Ministry of the Interior Police. Uh, but they have various police forces. There's a state level. Bosnians, Bosnia is a very complex political culture uh, because it's it's... Uh, divided into really two two states almost uh, the the federation and the Republika Srpska or the mm. Serb Republic and so they each have their own police force and then there's an overarching state police force uh, it's so it's policing like everything else in Bosnia is uh, is complicated on ethnic lines right so John would you say that 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 experience is what ultimately led you into your investigation work back here in Canada? Uh, indirectly, extent? yeah. I mean, I went, uh, I, I, I went to Iraq then after that. Uh, that was just for a year. And, uh, and then were, I were you doing the same thing in Iraq that you were, similar things in Iraq that you were doing in Bosnia or was it different? No, not so much. I mean, I, th- I thought I would be, but it, uh, I, I was part of the, uh, the provincial reconstruction team in Basra province. So the, Provincial reconstruction teams are a model that the British and the Americans and the Canadians, for that matter, have used in both Afghanistan and Iraq in, in post-conflict reconstruction. So I uh, was went over there as the international prosecutor assigned to work with a team of British detectives uh, in mentoring the Iraqis in a police corruption project. Uh, so it, it, it did, it certainly... Uh, you know, it, it had some of the same 
common features as the work I did in Bosnia. But in Iraq, I didn't have appearance privileges in Iraqi courts, so so we uh, we weren't prosecuting cases. We were just trying to persuade the Iraqis to prosecute them, right. and that didn't Is go that very right? that didn't go very well. <laughs> <laughs> where did you? Where were you stationed over there? I lived on the Basra Air Station, which was the main coalition base, a huge coalition base uh, in the south of the country, just outside Basra. And then I was there maybe just a few weeks, and the security situation deteriorated, and they canceled all land moves off for non-military personnel off the base. So, And, and sorry, when, when was this? This is uh, 2007, I guess. So... Um, yeah, so uh, from that point on, for the balance of the year, uh, when, w- when we went to the courts or when we went to prosecutors' offices, it was I had to be by helicopter or, uh, or, or by air up to Baghdad and so forth. So it was mobility was, was restricted. So and it, uh, Previous to that, you were just dri- like in vehicles, like driving well, we around? Would, or? Yeah, we would have, um, but that got... That got Kiboshed pretty camp. quick? Yeah, it did. Um, I guess kind of taking it even back before all that. Um, Way back. Because you had a bit of a different trajectory getting into law even, did you not? So you you went to law school. And maybe I, maybe I don't have this right. But go to law school, then London School of Economics? Uh, no, then I articled. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So I, yeah. I, I, I you articled before you went to the London School of Economics? Yeah. Oh, okay. So I didn't do an undergraduate degree. I just did two years. And then I got into law school. Yeah, I thought that was And the then case. I articled here in London. And then I went to law school at Western or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then I deferred what was then the bar, the bar exams, the bar admission course, which was a six month course of lectures and exams. Right. So. Which we uh, were, Melissa and I were deprived of, by the way. Yes. (laughs) Self-study. We just wrote the bar self-study. You didn't miss much. yeah, so they let me defer that, and uh, so I went to uh, to England for a year, and then came back and had to do the bar that bar admission course when I got back. And then you, when you started out, there was no when you started out practicing in London, there was no Mackenzie Lake lawyers. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, nineteen ninety eight. I remember the date. Uh, yeah, I think the first the effective date of the merger was October first, nineteen ninety eight. Was was Mavis the only female lawyer at the time, or were there others back then? Do you uh, recall? No, she wasn't the only one, I don't believe. Um, Sandra will like this. Don't remember if Sandra Van Weimer was there at the start or she came <laughs> a bit later. But uh, but certainly there were there were female associates. I don't know if there were any female partners. Okay. Uh, in fact, I don't think there were when at the time of the merger. Wow. Yeah. How does a merger like that happen? Is that just lawyers on either sides identifying sort of synergies between the two and thinking, yeah, let's that's get together exact- on this? Yeah, it was very much like that. Um, you know, each one, one ob- obstacle really was that each of the firms owned their own premises. And so, you know, we had to decide where we're going to move if we did join forces. You weren't going to pick that place on Talbot, though, right? The Shire or whatever it was? <laughs> no. <laughs> had a no. funny smell to it, I think, <laughs> from what I remember. No, we were on Dundas. We were at 300 Dundas. Okay. And wasn't there oh, no, one sorry, on we Queen? Were at, we were at 400 Queens Ave, and we moved to 300. Right. There Ross, was one with, like, uh, like uh like an over, wasn't bridge there? between yeah, two houses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the <laughs> nicest space in the place, out on the bridge. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've heard about that. Then it got too dangerous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no, it was uh, that part. Drula built it, so it was good. It was never going to fall down. <laughs> so, yeah, so then you moved to 300 Dundas when you merged. That's right. And we carried the, 
the 400 Queen's property until it eventually sold. Uh, but yeah, the, the impetus was that, that uh, you know, that the two firms thought that they would have more, more depth and ability to get better work. And, uh, and we also thought, frankly, we could, you know, we could accommodate the, the merged firm at one location and operate more f- efficiently. And we did. The, the whole 300 Dundas premises, it was cramped and outdated by the time we left, but it, it, uh, it was, you know, it was an efficient place to, profitable place. No, that's what, how you describe <laughs> it too, right, Melissa? Efficient and profitable. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa started there, right? Yeah. You, you articled there. Summer Dane articled yeah, there, right? Yeah, that was from the articling office up to the second floor, back down to the articling office. Oh, right. That's the, right. The interior window. You were down in the, the basement. In the articling office. No, no, I never made oh. my way. That was just Jim. Jim just got sacked. <laughs> that was a project-specific placement. <laughs> but yeah. On the third floor outside Malcolm Bennett's office, people were at risk of stacks of boxes falling on them, I think. Well, that was no different than here, though. Did you have to have a security detail over there as well? uh, (laughs) Protect ourselves from the flooding out back. There's more environmental hazards over there. The mice. Yes. But yeah, so anyways, we we often see you here on on weekends. Um, Well, sort of see you. You're you're kind of camouflaged sometimes when we we see you in here on weekends and (laughs) Under Armour camo gear. What's, what's, oh, I see. What's, <laughs> yeah. what, what is there to that? Yeah, I'm, uh, nobody's supposed to see me wearing Oh, that that's the idea. <laughs> You're, you like to hunt as well, right? Yeah, I've always been an outdoors guy. Yeah. So fishing and hunting has kind of been my thing. Okay. And, uh, and I was told that you're quite the marksman as well by another lawyer at the firm. Oh, I'm quite capable of missing <laughs> on, any, on any given day. I don't know. I heard you were down and traveling the U.S. doing competitions there and whatnot. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I shot uh, trap and sporting clays uh, quite a bit, and including some trips down to the states. Okay, uh, but you know, nothing, uh, not at Olympic level. And and sports seem to kind of run in your family too, right? Because you have a, a niece who's a world champion swimmer. Uh, Maggie what, McNeil's her name. She is. Uh, she is uh, the the reigning uh, world champion in the hundred meter buff- butterfly. Like world yeah. record or world champion or uh, not, not a world record, but uh, but she won the uh, the July twenty what twenty nineteen world championships in South Korea. Wow! Oh, wow. In the hundred meter butterfly. How old is she now? Twenty. Yeah. Would, would she go up against like Penny Alexiak or like she, she's on the same team as okay. Penny Alexiak? Right. Um, she yep. uh, she took the spot amongst the Canadian swimmers, which included Penny Alexiak, for that that particular event is that right 100 meter fly and she beat uh, a swimmer named sarah seostrom who uh, is the swedish uh, four or five time world champion and and reigning olympic gold medalist wow she's a uh, she has a a scholarship at university of michigan and uh, so she would be going into her third year junior year i guess they call that but uh, she's at home right now doesn't know there'll be no uh, NCAA competition this fall so she's not certain whether she's going back to Michigan or when she's going back uh, but she hopes to because uh, the training and coaching she's had in, in, at Ann, in Ann Arbor has just been tremendous. John, thanks for sitting down with us today. Thank you, it's been fun. 